Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. And welcome to Ramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. I'm your host, Tim Sylvie, and joining me are racing driver come broadcaster Alex Brundle and Statman come walking F1 encyclopedia, Sean Kelly. Alex, first to you, how's it going, my friend? Going very well. Straight off a race weekend at Silverstone and straight into the combox for the Beeb at, uh, for the Mexican Grand Prix next weekend. So can't complain too much. Excellent. And Sean, what about you? All good in your world? It's a hectic end to the season for me because, of course, we've got the remaining races in North America. And I've been pondering the last double century of Formula One races. I will get into that later in our show. Lovely stuff. And we've also got the second in our trio of interviews with Aston Martin Performance Director Tom McCullough in our Aramco Focus. But let's kick things off with a Performance Focus. Right then, Alex, let's get cracking. Now, in the recent US Grand Prix in Austin, we saw the unusual occurrence of two cars being disqualified for excessive wear to the plank on the floor. And it's that topic that frames your performance focus today. Isn't that right? It frames it, certainly. But I think it's indicative of a broader topic, which is what happens to race teams when you effectively take all their practice away. The audience love to see uh, race teams put on the back foot and they love to see mixed up grids. But what kind of crazy frantic rush occurs within those teams? And what are the effects of that when you just delete the part of the race weekend where they're trying to prepare themselves to go racing? Now, first up, and actually, I'm going to come to you with this one, Sean, and let you hijack this question somewhat with some historical context. What is the plank and why is it important? Well, I'll let Alex explain from an engineering perspective the necessity of the plank. But the, the history of the plank is that it was introduced in Formula One at the 1994 German Grand Prix. And it was a few races post Imola 94, the tragedies of Roland Ratzenberger and Ayat and Senna. And Max Mosley in the FIA uh, introduced a lot of somewhat knee-jerk reactions, brought forward a lot of changes that were intended for 1995. And uh, one of them was actually originally the stepped floor. They intended to introduce a stepped floor uh, in 1995. They then decided they were going to do it in mid-94. The teams had uh, an uproar, said, no, you can't do it that quickly. And then they said, OK, we're going to put this plank of wood on the bottom. We won't do the stepped floor till next year, but we do want the plank underneath the car from the German Grand Prix onwards. I'll let Alex pick up what that would have done to a car in the middle of what was then called the flat bottom era. From that point forth, it was no longer a flat bottom car. Certainly so. And it's evolved into what is actually quite a complex and multifaceted piece of apparatus on the bottom of the car. You've got the, the titanium skids, which you see generating the sparks, a little bit showbiz, a little bit performance. Now the plank generated and, and made out of what is a kind of a glass fiber resin with wood within it. Um, and it was 
brought in to prevent teams running the cars too low. There is a maximum amount of wear that can be measured at the wear holes um, and, and is done so. It's one millimetre you're allowed of wear at the wear holes in that plank apparatus uh, at any point during a Grand Prix weekend. If you wear the if you wear the plank too much, you are disqualified. It is a it is a uh, motorsport wide concept, and uh, it, it in modern times, yes, it is there for safety. And indeed, in this ground effect era of Formula One, the the limitations of running the car close to the ground need to be there. Otherwise, the uh, the amount of skidding the car along the floor would be absolutely extreme. But it also, I believe, in, in many forms of modern motorsport, serves a cost-saving tool because what we would actually end up doing if we didn't have that PPS apparatus on the bottom of the car is grinding carbon fibre along the surface of the racetrack so often. And actually, you would end up with extremely expensive and extremely consumable aerodynamic apparatus on the base of the cars. Now, Alex, Austin was, of course, a sprint weekend. Um, Mercedes and Ferrari, who each had a car disqualified, blamed the lack of practice running for the ride height areas that led to the extra plank wear and tear. Red Bull, meanwhile, lost a bit of pace overall by going conservative on ride height. So is this another example of a lack of practice on sprint weekends being bad for teams, but great for fans? It's something that to our viewer must seem absolutely bizarre. How can Formula One teams not know how high their car is riding off the uh, off the surface of the racetrack? But it's a really complicated thing. So you've got a an arrangement between the amount of downforce that the car is producing, which obviously squashes the car towards the tarmac, the uh, the spring rates and the suspension elements where you're running, which are the resistance to that compression towards the tarmac, and then the tyre pressure as the tyre pressure raises, which subtly increases the ride height. So you've got a massively temperature sensitive and ambient sensitive sequence of factors which are all coming together to generate what you would call a destination ride height which is the lowest point the car is ever around the circuit add to that the fact that austin texas is is an ever moving target it's a little bit like portamao in portugal where it's built on subsiding land which is slowly uh, rucking up and becoming bumpier and bumpier and bumpier over the years so it's definitely a factor that teams who have this lack of practice have to rely on historical data in order to set up their race cars for the race event. Add to that, for example, the amount of fuel you need to put in for the start of the race, and you can get yourself really in a muddle. If you, for example, throw back and try to use data from a previous year with different ambient temperatures, perhaps a different track surface or simulation data that's not exactly correct. So just taking away those couple of hours of practice absolutely destroys that calculation. And I can see why major motorsport teams are making errors on what would appear to be an incredibly basic thing. Mm. So presumably from what you're saying, a lack, a lack of practice equals teams making more setup areas that that's a given or or are there scenarios where they can use those simulations to better effect and you're going to see less of those errors as a consequence of lack of practice 
I think it's really the aim of lack of practice, isn't it? That was kind of the point mm. that teams make set up errors. We pump them into Park Ferme uh, on Friday evening, and then they've got what they've got. The unfortunate, uh, the unfortunate offshoot of that is you have things like for example, happened to Haas, where they bring a new sequence of upgrades to the car in Cota, and they don't have enough time to appropriately evaluate those upgrades, and you lose what could have been a very exciting home performance for Haas because they plain just haven't had enough time to throw a load of Flovis on it and see what it's doing. And it is one of the most unusual or statistically unusual things this season that Charles Leclerc, notwithstanding the fact that he was banked from the results uh, in the US Grand Prix, All of his front row starts this year and all of his podium finishes have come in sprint weekends. He has yet to achieve either of those things in a conventional uh, race weekend. Now, why that is, I will leave to more uh, well-informed individuals. But statistically, that is the case. It's interesting that actually what you've got is you're putting the drivers in a different zone, aren't you? You're asking, and I remember saying this in comparison between George Russell uh, and Lewis Hamilton when the Mercedes were, was really struggling with the bouncing uh, and the rear management issues in this latest generation of regulations, that some drivers can really drive around an imperfect car, but also some drivers are much better at that communication with the engineering team to get from free practice one when they go out and it has a little bit of this or a little bit of that or lacks a little bit of efficiency to the end of free practice three to get the car absolutely how they want it and in a nice efficient window so it's actually a different skill you're moving it perhaps to move the error bars even wider uh, closer to the rally driver and further away from the single-seater driver in terms of a, a skill range, which is quite an interesting, quite an interesting dynamic, isn't it? It is, and and we know the teams use simulation tools to try and counter that lack of practice, but they're not always reliable, are they? When we saw the likes of Aston Martin and Ferrari both suffering at different points over the weekend because they trusted sim data that turned out to be imprecise. I'm going to throw you back to Singapore when we were discussing an extension of the runoff area, I think it was turn 16 down in the final sector. And actually, uh, teams were concerned the runoff area is going to be lengthened because of an addition of the DRS zone, which would have run through turn 15. That was declined by the FIA. And one of the reasons it was declined by the FIA was because of the massive bump on the simulation data in the middle of turn 15 which was a bump which doesn't exist. The, the, uh, the laser scan for the simulation data was incorrect in that instance. And so all the teams went out in FP1 with massively higher ride heights than they needed because of this bump. That happens all the time, imperfect laser scans and imperfect circuit edges. Add to that the fact that the tyre manufacturer Pirelli will not give out an a totally accurate tyre model for the tyre product they deliver. Why will they not? Because they don't want their competitors to get hold of it and potentially copy their tyres. So all of those different little bits of extra fudge around the simulation data detract from the the team's ability to appropriately set up the cars. Love a bit of extra fudge. Do you think the drivers like the added uncertainty that comes with sprint weekends? I mean, we obviously do, well, most of us do as spectators, we like it being mixed up a little bit. Or for a driver, does it very much depend on what car you're driving? 
No, <laughs> they dislike it generally. Um, I think that you know, taking away from a driver's ability to set a car up to the specification that they want um, it is a really difficult one and, and is potentially even a little bit dangerous in certain scenarios. I, I was amazed, for example, this year we ran a sprint event in Spa with all of the compression at the base of Eau Rouge and, and the difficulties associated. Um, you know, you are only ever, as we as you know, the 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 inception of this uh, plank regulation uh, dictates, you're only one ground out moment away from losing all of the downforce and having a massive accident. And I think that that is something we really do need to keep in mind when we limit drivers' practice out on the racetrack. I mean, obviously, the teams have a massive amount of data to get around that, but. It, it is something that is incredibly difficult for the drivers. For the fans, I can see why they enjoy it. It puts a huge curveball into race day. I don't like losing cars from the grid, though, when they need to go into the garage to make changes before the Grand Prix. Yeah, very fair. And and what's your personal take on sprint races? And for me, it's a bit hit and miss. Um, you know, the US race wasn't fantastic. Would you change them at all to mix it up a bit? I do think that there needs to be a, a reverse grid element um, to, to the sprint races. I, I very much enjoy that in uh, in Formula 2 uh, and I've enjoyed it in Formula 3 as well. I think that that, that would really add something. Uh, you need to be careful, though, because we, we do see that the more you mix it up, the more you actually generate this sort of cruise effect where major championship contenders just sort of go hands off and uh, there's nothing to be won from me here. I qualified it on pole in sprint qualifying. You've now put me 15th. I'm I'm not going to get any points, and so I might as well not try at all. So it, it's a difficult balance to, spr- to strike. I think the moment for the sprint races this year was... Oscar Piastri coming across the line first. And that's a that's a very exciting moment for a driver early in his Formula One career. And I think it would be a shame to be robbed of that moment uh, this year just for purity uh, of the of the contest. And in the meantime, as a statistician, it makes my life a nightmare because Oscar Piastri has won a sprint <laughs> before winning a Grand Prix. Thanks very much, history. <laughs> has he won a race, Sean? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Yeah, well, um, uh, it depends who you ask now, doesn't it? I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> Great stuff, Alex. And remember, if you have a question or comment related to anything we've talked about on the show, you can drop us a line on social media using the hashtag AramcoF1Focus. Right then, it's time to bow down to the stat master in Sean's stat focus. Sean, what statistical delights have you been ruminating on recently? Well, Tim and Alex, Austin 2023 was the double century, the 200th Grand Prix in the history of the turbo hybrid era. Way back when in 2014, we started out on this brave new world where Formula One cars were going to be 1.6 litre V6 turbos with uh, recoverable energy from the brakes and the exhaust. and, And it was going to be a far more efficient era. But what does it actually mean in terms of the record books themselves. In those 200 races, well, it's fair to say there has been a bit of a locked-in hegemony at the front of the field. Of course, Lewis Hamilton, the dominant driver of the era, uh, with 81 wins. And Max Verstappen, 
in Austin claimed his 50th win overall, all of which have come in the hybrid era. The other two behind them, the next two cars behind them, next two drivers behind them, Nico Rosberg on 20 and Sebastian Vettel on 14. Uh, they're both retired. Uh, so the next most successful driver in the hybrid era is Valtteri Bottas with 10 wins, uh, believe it or not. So in this era, since 2014, 13 drivers have won. We've had nine new winners in that time, most recent two, Carlos Sainz and George Russell last year in 2022. And we've got drivers... Um, who've put up good numbers but not won so far. Lando Norris, 12 podiums now without a win as of Austin 2023. Oscar Piastri's pushing through, notwithstanding the fact that he may or may not have won a race in Qatar, depending on how you look at it. Uh, Lance Stroll's been on pole position but hasn't won a Grand Prix. And then, of course, we have the big outlier, Fernando Alonso, a 32-time race winner. But he has never won a hybrid race. His last race win was in 2013, the last year uh, of the uh, V8 era. He's won a hybrid race, just not in a Formula One car. He would have run it in a Toyota Le Mans car. <laughs> I, I do take yes. your point, Sean. Y yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed so. That is extra fudge, folks. <laughs> Sean, this era has been dominated by three teams. Is it normal that two or three teams dominate regardless of the engine formula? Yes. Yeah. Uh, reluctantly, yes, that is the case. I mean, in these 200 races, 112 have been won by Mercedes in that time. 62 of them have been won by Red Bull, who you would say were the dominant team of the previous V8 era. Uh, Ferrari have won 22. So at that point, if you've, if you've been keeping score, we're now up to 196 of the 200 races won by just those three teams. So in that time, we've had four races, just four that have been won by all of the other constructors on the grid. That, that breaks down to AlphaTauri, Racing Point, Alpine and McLaren, who have all won one race each. They all came between Monza 2020 and Monza 2021. So there was this 12-month period of violence that went on in the record books when suddenly every team seemed to be winning a race. Uh, and then we went back to what we had before, Mercedes, Red Bull or Ferrari, a strange uh, blip uh, in the... Uh, hybrid history. Now, when it comes to the hegemony amongst the constructors, um, if I take you back to my my first year as a fan was 1987. Now, Ayrton Senna was racing for Lotus. He won at Monaco and Detroit in 87. After that win, um, Williams, McLaren, Benetton and Ferrari won every single Grand Prix from midway through 1987 until midway through 1996, almost a decade where only four teams won. You'll probably remember who broke that record. It was Olivier Panis winning for Ligier in the Monaco Grand Prix of 1996. And that broke into a, a new era where a few other teams could get in. Um, Jordan won three Grand Prix. Um, Benetton's uh, win total dropped from 25 in the previous uh, 10 years to just uh, one race, one more Grand Prix that they won. Stewart uh, won a Grand Prix, but it started to open up um, a little bit. And then we moved into the V8 era from 2006. Now, that was interesting because we had teams changing names through that period. Now, by and large, again, you had three teams dominating. It was Red Bull, Ferrari uh, and McLaren. Now, then there was the Enstone team, Renault and Lotus. They won 12 races. Then you had, however you want to call it, Honda, Braun GP and Mercedes. Well, they only won 13 in that era. And then you got the stragglers. BMW, Sauber won a race. Tara Russell won a race. And Williams won a race. So... In that sense, what we have seen in terms of three teams dominating is actually not terribly unusual 
within that sample set of 200 races. Well, anybody who was wanting to have a meeting in the paddock was pretty happy when the uh, when the V10 and V8 eras <laughs> seeded to the turbo hybrid era because I distinctly remember sitting there in uh, in the feeder series paddock and everything stopped. We we you couldn't have a conversation uh, with uh, with with those cars going around. But how do how have things progressed? in terms of outright performance through through the hybrid era, even with the the tyre manufacturer asking for uh, slots to be cut out the floors and changes in the tyre size, etc. Uh, does it compare to how F1 was at the end of the, the V10 and V8 era? Well, you know, you're, you're a driver and you're more into the engineering speak than I am, but I'm always aware that when we're keeping records in that department, you have to bear in mind the moving target that is the evolution of Grand Prix cars and design and so on. With, with that said, um, in 2013, I'll give you a good example is the Spanish Grand Prix, perhaps the ultimate uh, chassis car track that we have on the calendar. In 2013, the pole position was 1 minute 20.7. 1 minute 20.7. Then we moved to the hybrid the next pole position in 2014 was 125.2. So they lost four and a half seconds of pace by moving from the V8 to the hybrid. Uh, now, slowly over time, uh, well, in fact, not so slowly over time, they started to gain that performance back. By 2016, they gained uh, 3.2 seconds of that back. So the, the evolution of the hybrid was quite dramatic uh, in the early years. Then it's not, a, um, it's not quite a fair comparison because in 2017... The cars were widened by uh, 200 mil uh, and they got bigger wings and so on. So by default, the performance was a lot better. By 2019, they got down to a 115.4. That's five seconds quicker than they were doing in the V8 era and 10 seconds quicker than they were going in 2014. If you watch the pole lap from 2014 now or, you know, well, even now, if you were watching it in 2019, especially... That's now that would have been a time that would have been outside 107 percent. It wouldn't even have been, it wouldn't even have been allowed to start the race in 2019. Um, the last year, 2022, before they moved the chicane, they took the chicane out this year. Uh, they were in the 118s, so uh, they're they're actually a little bit quicker uh, in overall lap time around Catalonia. Now, when it comes to top speeds, um, obviously the most obvious candidate is Monza because you know that's usually the fastest track, the, the smallest wing on the calendar. Uh, and it was used in the previous era of, of engine formula. In 2005, a McLaren broke 370 kilometers an hour at Monza, which is the fastest we ever actually saw uh, in a Grand Prix at the time. By 2013, they were going 30 kilometers less down the straight, believe it or not. The fastest trap speed was 340 uh, in the 24, in 2013 race. In 2014, the first year of the hybrid era, they then gained another 14 kilometers an hour. They started going a lot quicker again. But then we moved to the wider card again. And the wider car, of course, you know this, Alex, punches a, wide, a bigger hole in the air. So you get more drag. It's not flying through the air through a, small, a smaller gap in the air, if you will. Uh, and we lost a bit of top speed. But with that said, at Mexico in 2016, we saw the highest top speed ever seen in a Grand Prix. Valtteri Bottas broke the speed trap at 372 0.6 kilometers an hour. So that's as fast as any Formula One car uh, has gone in a Grand Prix. Always important to remember that actually it's the, the turbo element which generated that because, of course, Mexico being it, having its specific air pressure reduces drag but also reduces the amount of oxygen available to the engine. Unless, of course, you can uh, you can compensate 
using turbo power and and the 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 confluence of those two factors were what generated that peak speed for Valtteri Bottas. Right, and and also uh, back in 1988, which was the one year where we really had um, a good comparison between turbo and non-turbo in Mexico City. Um, the tur- all the turbo gar- cars, even the relatively uncompetitive ones, qualified much higher than they would have done simply because they could get more air into the engine. And it gave them, not, I don't want to say an unfair advantage because it was in the rules, but those Benettons, which are the, the fastest non-turbo cars, couldn't even score a point that year. I distinctly remember racing a, a naturally aspirated car against a turbo car in a BOP formula at, uh, at Mexico City. And the, uh, the the governing body coming around to apologise to us because they couldn't make the turbo car slow enough <laughs> at uh, in the, in that ambient condition. Yeah, there's there's a big discrepancy, isn't there, between the speeds of these cars over the years? But weirdly, on a broadcast TV, you can barely tell the difference. It's it's a, it's a funny old thing. Um, is a lot of the domination, Sean, of the top teams down to the increase in reliability during the past ten years or so? And how does that reliability compare with F1's past? Well, it is definitely the case that um, a a lot of the advantage is sort of consolidated by the fact that we very rarely see mechanical failures in a race anymore. I mean, it really is, it's unrecognisable from where we even were in the V8 era. And the V8 era was actually pretty reliable. I mean, it's pretty dependable technology by the time it was retired from the formula, so to speak. Um, But coming into the hybrid era, we had had four races ever in what 63 years where uh, all the drivers who started the race finished the first one was the dutch grand prix of 1961 now in that race 15 cars started the race there were actually two non-starters maston gregory and ian burgess did not start the race so we have to put that to one side and say okay there were two cars not on the grid at all that's still the only grand prix proper grand prix full points grand prix that's taken place where every starter finished the race and nobody made a pit stop that's an that's a answer to a trivia question in its own right. It ne- never happened again until Indianapolis in, in 2005. And you all know the reason why. Because 14 cars did not start the race. They all pulled in. All the Michelin runners failed to start. We were left with six cars on the grid. Two Ferraris, two Jordans, two Minardis. All on Bridgestone tyres. They started the race. Uh, they ran through the race and none of them retired from the race. So officially, that was the second race without a retirement. Later that year at Monza, it then happened for real in, in you know, speech marks, uh, all 20 cars finished. And it happened again at the 2011 European Grand Prix in Valencia. Now, that gives us another answer to a trivia question because Narayan Karthikeyan is the only driver to, uh, to finish. He finished last in both of those races. So he finished, he was the last finisher in two Grand Prix in which there were no retirements. So we then get to 2014. We've had four races in history where every driver has finished the race. Since 2014, in these 200 hybrid races, 11 races have been completed without a classified retirement. That is really uh, phenomenal. And this year, we've had three races this year where there hasn't even been a yellow flag in a race. Miami, Spain, Austin was the third one. And in Miami and Spain, they were retirement free, yellow flag free and safety car free. The level of punctuality, if you will, as once we wave the cars away from the start line, it's very close to certain that uh, at least 85, 90% of them will be coming around to finish the race in an hour and a half's time. There, there's a time when a, uh, a Formula One single-seater was 600 kilos 
of 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 racing car now with driver the fuel to do a grand prix because there's no refueling approaching a ton of racing car goes down towards the first corner uh in in a formula one grand prix how do you feel about the way that the f1 race car weights have changed in recent years and there's always that debate isn't there because there are so many naysayers of the hybrid tech who say it's these big hybrid engines they're too heavy and then the the inevitable response is that is we've got more crash structures we've got more safety elements than we've ever had where for you is that balance sean well first off let's recap how we got here how we how did we get to 798 kilos of formula one car because back in the what you might call the halcyon days of Senna, Mansell, Prost, et al. The, the dry weight of the car was 500-ish kilos, but they didn't used to include the driver's weight back then. So it's a little bit, I think it might be a bit of an unfair calculation. You might want to add 70 to that once you put a driver into it. From 1995 onwards, uh, and we did mention previously the, the post-Imola changes after uh, Imola 1994, that ushered in an era where the FIA was much more willing to make changes And one of them was include the weight of the driver. So by 2008, the dry weight was 585 kilos. Uh, Then refueling was banned. That meant the fuel tank had to get bigger. Um, So uh, then KERS was added. By 2013, we were up to 642 kilos. Then the hybrid era began. And that added another 50 kilos to the minimum weight limit. Because the power unit, I'm reliably informed. I don't know this because I haven't put them on a set of scales. Um, the power units I'm reliably informed are around 150 kilos. Now, at the, uh, the, the peak of the V10 era, Honda and BMW were building three litre V10s that weighed 88 kilos um, instead of 150. So you can see straight away, okay, well, that's, that's going to add something to the weight limit. Um, then in 2017, the cars got wider. Of course, if, you've got, if there's more real estate on the car, you're going to need a, a, a higher minimum weight limit. It goes up to 728. Then in 2018, a halo goes on the cockpit. That adds another six kilos. And then in 2022, we've got bigger wheels, bigger covers, ground effects and all that stuff. And that's how we've ended up at nearly 800 kilos. But if you refer back to what I mentioned about the V10, if a V10 was 88 kilos, we're now up to 150 kilos. You could say maybe 60 or so kilos are actually the responsibility of the hybrid. Uh, All the rest of it, as you mentioned, Alex, crash structures and all the other accoutrements that Formula One cars have acquired in the last 15 years. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how they, they've gone up and down. And, and I've actually just looked up the weights just out of pure uh, curiosity of a Formula E car um, without a driver is 760 kilos and with the driver up to 800, 840 kilos. So for such small, you know, much more smaller, nimble cars, they're still way a hefty lump. Um, now that that hybrid technology, a question for both of you, really, because I'm I'm keen to get your take on this, Alex, as well, from a driver's perspective. What would you change? Come to you first, Sean. What would you change about the hybrid tech that we see in the cars at the moment? I actually wouldn't change anything necessarily about the tech. I'm I'm firmly on. You might say I'm. You might accuse me of towing the corporate line, the party line here, but I'm firm in the belief that these engines are the most technically impressive engines that have ever been in Formula One. Now, it has some shortcomings in terms of, okay, it's a heavy thing and so on. But in terms of its efficiency, we've never seen anything like it in Grand Prix racing. The only thing I would change, which is sort of an aesthetic, is is the noise. But I wouldn't make it louder. And a lot of people argue that it should be louder. I went to a NASCAR Cup race 
couple of weekends ago in Las Vegas, and I was promptly reminded how it is impossible to have a conversation when you're around engines that are that loud. I quite appreciate the Formula One's not ear-splittingly loud. It would be nice if we had that nice V12 whale about it. But the other thing I would change, um, again, not actually... It, it more pertains to the sporting regulations, and that is, if we're going to keep on with these sprint races, let's take the fuel flow limit off on Saturdays, and then just uh, have them go hell for leather, and and consider, okay, it's sprint Saturday, it's, that's what it says it is, this is as fast as the thing will go, pump all the fuel you want into it, the only thing is, I don't think that goes with uh, Formula One's green credentials, but that would achieve, uh, ultimately, what I think uh, Alex was pertaining to earlier about reverse grids and making the sprint different to the Grand Prix. You give the, the teams the opportunity to basically hang themselves by betting too much reliability on getting absolute performance out of those power units because you're still restricted by the number of power units you have. Um, so you know if you run it harder than it's necessarily supposed to be designed to do uh, to get a few extra points on Saturday, you might be compromised either on the Sunday or on another Sunday, seven races in the future when suddenly the engine blows up. That'll be it. It would all be very Ken Miles, wouldn't it? It would, you know, seven thousand plus. You know, go 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 like hell. I like I like that idea. They'd all be harping for another power unit, though, wouldn't they? They'd be harping for another ice unit or a or a sprint engine. Um, I look at it and I think, do our audience really understand? two um motor generator units you know so you've got the mguk which sits in the gearbox and it generates um battery charge from the uh from the rotational rotational forces inside inside the gearbox and then you've got the mguh which generate does a very similar thing but it just connects into the turbo and spins the turbo up i think you could get rid of one of them and uh, I don't, and, and the associated weight, and I'm not sure anyone would really notice a huge amount. And of course, then you could get rid of the amount of battery uh, capacity required to contain the energy generated by that hybrid element. I would, I would go for that and do that. I don't think we need any more capacity in a Formula One engine. I like the move towards. Uh, synthetic and biofuels. I think that's very intelligent in the world that we live in now. I think we are planning on ditching the 18-inch tyres. There's been some rumblings about that. And 18-inch wheels, I should say. There's been some rumblings about that. And I think that's unnecessary weight to be lugging around the racetrack. The first time I saw a Formula 2 car, uh, you know, try and pirouette into the first corner in Bahrain with the 18-inch wheel on, I thought, mm, Really? bit a little bit little bit unnecessary um beyond that i don't i'm in agreement that actually i i do think that a lot of that weight is safety equipment which of course we need and, and we would never compromise on rather than hybrid energy but i think those are the changes that i would make in the modern environment and with the partners that formula one have now if I had entirely free reign and infinite money, of course, I'd have H-Pattern V12s. But I can't have H-Pattern V12s because no one would watch it apart from me. And I wouldn't mind that at all. I'd sit, I'd sit at home alone and watch it. I don't mind. Would, would you even be able to change gear fast enough, the way these cars accelerate? You'd be you'd just constantly go on an, oh, an H-Pattern. come on. Give out, yeah. I'm not sure. To be honest, it, it would be quite impressive. With the, with the weight of a V12 and the torque curve, it'd be, 
you know, and no hybrid assistance. It'd be quite impressive if you could make one that would accelerate as fast as that. I'd be, uh, I'd be, I'd be pretty impressed with that. But yeah, you could slim them down a little bit for sure. I am, I am all in favour of anything that promotes driver error because that shows that's the, the the drivers who make the fewest errors are the best drivers. So any chance you give inferior drivers to make more mistakes, I'm all in favour of that. One one thing I'm not behind, and I think it's the way that it will go, um, and I will complain briefly and then still watch it and love it, <laughs> is greater electrification, um, you know, to the point where, you know, we see drivers doing the Formula E overtake, which is all I need to do is stay on the throttle and drive by you and then save fuel, tyres, energy for the next three corners. For me, I, I just... That's not the way I want to see Formula One motor racing. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what 2026 brings, isn't it? Um, Well, we'll leave it there, gents. Uh, Wonderful statistical prowess once again, Sean. Thank you as ever. Right, it's now time for our Ramco Focus, which features another interview with Aston Martin Performance Director Tom McCullough. This time, he tells us all about how an F1 team goes about introducing upgrades to a car. Tom, thanks for joining us. F1 fans are used to the idea of teams bringing upgrades throughout the season, but perhaps you can give us some insight into how that process works. For example, what are the factors driving what upgrades are brought? A lot of the um, updates that we bring to the car during the season um, are aerodynamic. You know, that is the key performance differentiator in Formula 1. Um, saying that, we're also trying to evolve all the smaller um, or the parts of it have a significant influence on uh, performance, but they need to be evolved as well. Because if they stand still, you'd be, you know, you fall behind. Now, a lot of our um, understanding of how to develop the car comes from um, our simulation tools, but also our competitor analysis of where we're strong and where we're weak. And um, so everyone's got the same regulations to work to. Everyone in Formula One. The fantastic thing about Formula One is you can design and develop the car as you want, and it's so different to most of the series. So. The end product of that, when you get to the circuits, and the circuits are all different, and the requirements of those circuits are all different, but you tend to develop an understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of your own car. Now your drivers are saying, I'm limited by this. Um, I feel I'm not as strong in this corner compared to that car I was following in the race. And we go back and we look at that data, like a fantastic and competitor analysis data. So we know um, how the other cars are achieving their lap time, and we don't know exactly um, you know, the mechanisms by which they're achieving that time, but we can for sure say in a low speed, a medium speed, a high speed corner, X team gains due to this, you know, from a, uh, a GPS overlay or sector analysis. So we take that information, we look at our own development tools. You know, our simulation tools lead us to say, for that car to go quicker, you need to improve the performance here, here, and here. And this is. Um, the most laptop sensitive way of doing it. So, of course, um, the the understanding of where you need to improve is relatively easy. The hard bit is how you achieve that. Um, and again, that's, you know, again, I fall back to largely on the aerodynamic side, but you're forever correlating um, the track data to your development tools. So your development tools, mainly aerodynamically, are obviously the wind tunnel and CFD, but then you're also using the simulator and the offline simulation tools you know, to close the loop on that process. 
and to generate the uptime sensitivities um, uh, and give the direction to the core development team as to where they should be looking um, and the, tr the kind of trades they have to make for that's often the case it's very uh, difficult to just add performance per se you're forever adding performance but maybe as a bit of a trade um, and that's that's always been the job really do you ever have a situation where um, the driver says, oh, this is, a, this is a horrible upgrade, it feels terrible, but actually you find it improves the lap time? <laughs> I've, had, I've had some really interesting examples over the year. Now, we obviously study car data um, to the nth degree. The drivers are very stability limited. Um, they like a nice, you know, different levels of stability for different drivers, but they want to have the confidence to attack a corner and know that the, the platform below them is going to do what they expect. Um, I've had times where, you know, and often it's interesting to ask a driver what he thinks about the car before he sees his, his position in the tiles, because I guarantee you, if you do a practice session, even experienced drivers, if they come in and they feel that balance isn't too badly, you know, the guys have pitched the car pretty good there. If they look at the lap time and he's 16th fastest, he's, oh, this is rubbish. If they come in in the third or fourth fastest, it's like, yeah, car's pretty good to be honest. That's just fine too, you know. It's like you have to be data driven. You have to understand your drivers. You really have to understand your environment, the track, the conditions. The tires can be so fundamental. You know, if you are out of the window with the tires, or you've decided to do some test items which have resulted in the tire temperatures dropping out the window. If the driver then goes and tries to do a lap, he won't be quick, you know? So it's just that global understanding of all the key parameters and it's key to make sure you don't get lost at the race weekend. That was the great Tom McCullough, performance director of the Aston Martin F1 team. And we'll have more from him in the next episode. Well, that's about it for this episode, but we'll be back with you again soon for more stats, more performance insight and more F1 chat. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Alex, what's next for you? I am in the commentary box again for the Mexican Grand Prix. And then uh, preparing next year's racing exploits. It is silly season for us sports car drivers after all. Very good. And Sean, more fun on the horizon for you? Yeah, I should be on stage again this weekend, uh, impressing or annoying our guests and fans at the Formula One racetrack in Mexico City. One of my favourites of the year, the, the atmosphere among the very best that we encounter on the Formula One calendar. Completely agree. Terrific stuff. Well, thank you both for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sean. Bye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic.